Hey everyone, welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared, and I'm joined here with the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Ryan. What up, film fans? And Austin. Oh, hey. And introducing one of the members of the writing staff of Wisecrack, who I consider to be our resident Marvel expert, Matthew. Howdy, y'all. How's it going, Matthew? Welcome. Thank you kindly. Absolutely. All right. Cool. So today we're talking about the number one opening weekend of all time film, Avengers Infinity War, directed by the Russo brothers, starring Josh Brolin and a shit ton of other people. So um, as always, we're going to go around and get some first impressions. Usually we talk about the first time you've watched it and what's it like revisiting it. But I imagine we've all, uh, you know, it just came out. So let's start with Ryan. Um, damn. Okay. Well, I'm probably not the best person to start, uh, cause I'm not the Marvel expert. I don't really like Marvel movies. I've, uh, as I've said on the record before, I only like the funny ones, Deadpool, Guardians of the Galaxy and the first Avengers. Um, so going to this one, I like that there was a lot of comedy in this movie, you know, so that's one plus for me. I like the, I felt like the first hour or 45 minutes to an hour had a really awesome momentum. Like, it was rolling. Like every scene, I was like, all right, uh, uh, on the edge of my seat, kind of. Um, but then it kind of lost that after a while. I mean, it is a two and a half hour fucking long movie. Um, but then, and then I kind of got bored during the Infinity War. I don't care enough about all the characters to really give a shit about most of it. Um, but then, uh, uh, but then the end, I thought, was like a very bold ending when fucking half of the team dies. Spoiler alert. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 so, which I thought was awesome. It, was, it reminded me of a movie we reference on here, Takashi Miike's Dead or Alive. Oh, please. <laughs> That's way more hardcore. Yeah, Don't it's even. way more hardcore. But I just, I thought the, the balls of just the, uh, um, you know, ending a movie where half of the universe dies right. and stuff. But having said that, I will, I have a, a deep, deep disdain for for part one movies, you know, for mm -hmm. any movie that, that is not, you know, final, you know, like, like, like you're not satisfied by the end. Like there's more to the story. I didn't like it when kill bill did it. I didn't fucking, I, I never like it. You know, I, I, I feel like give me half of my money back, please. But aren't all of these films like part ones? Exactly. Yeah. But, but, but yeah, this is part usually 19. they do, Usually they, yeah, this is part 19, but usually they do a, for the most part, some they do a good job of keeping them pretty self-contained and then they'll have kind of a, uh, you know, a post credits. Oh shit! This person's coming. Scene. Oh yeah. You know, but it's never like, oh well, half the universe is dead. The end. You know, it's kind of <laughs> like, like come back next week, which is what this is. You know, so I, I hate that about it. But at the same time, I thought it it was kind of cool. So okay. I, I'm I'm I feel both ways. I'm mixed. Cool. Well, let's go next with our resident Marvel expert, Matthew. What do you think? Well, I actually can compare uh, my first and second time seeing it. I saw it twice. Uh, <laughs> Thursday. Preview night, and then first thing Friday morning, as soon as the theater opened, uh, which was always the plan, even if I was going to write the uh, Wisecrack edition or not, because I just love these Marvel movies. So first time, it was a good film, not top echelon, but second time around, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is a great Marvel movie, one of the best. And all the problems that were there in the first time, they were still there the second, but they don't detract from the movie at all. You know, it's still overly long. And yet I'm looking at all mm. the scenes and I'm like, but I wouldn't delete this. Like, that's not superlative. This is essential or this is worth watching, even if it's not essential. You know, this movie has way too much comedy. I did not like that the first time that I saw it. <laughs> and this is a trend that Marvel has been going in the wrong direction with. They nailed it with the original Iron Man, just a sprinkling of comedy into the action. But... The tipping point was Doctor Strange, and it was just way too much of the drama being undercut by humor at just all the wrong points. Here, though, every single joke lands. Again, not a joke that I would cut out of the movie. And there's really another problem. No protagonist. The ensemble cast is spread way too thin. And yet, watching it again, I'm like, Thanos carries this as the villain. You don't need the heroes doing any more than getting this one truly memorable moment, which other than Steve Rogers, all the big main cast members absolutely get one or two throughout the film. So yeah, I have really grown to love this over the times I've seen it. Awesome. Cool. What about you, Austin? Well, I mean, I, I'm not a Marvel fan at all. I've got Marvel superhero fatigue. This isn't my vibe at all. Uh, I tweeted out last night after just watching Bella Tar's 
final film, The Turin Horse, <laughs> which if anyone's seen it, is a slow uh, three-hour meditation on the time when Nietzsche went mad and uh, that sort of takes off like what happened to the horse in black and white with like almond. Like that's my vibe. Like give me slow yeah, cinema. Yeah, it's a great double feature with the Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I went in with the lowest of expectations. I was like, this is for work. That's how I viewed it when I went. I was like, I got to go see this movie because I have to talk about this on the podcast. And so I went in with a fucking sourpuss attitude, I think. And <laughs> the film grabbed me in my state of self-pity and it led me to the heights of ecstasy. And by the end, <laughs> by the end, me in this like cute little uh, woman, young, she was a young student. We started talking like before from the same university that I go to and I were like laughing and she was like smacking my arm. And like at one point she was like crying and she like grabbed my, she like grabbed my hoodie and she like looked at me and I was like teary eyed and shit. I was like, what the fuck, man? I was down for this movie. But actually, no, <laughs> let, me, let me say this again. It's not a movie. It, this is not a movie. This is an episodic adventure. I was down for this episodic adventure. And then I, I will say in kind of summation to this is that my, my friend who is a fantastic filmmaker in London messaged me afterwards and he said, I really liked it, but I think this is the death of cinema. And I think I get it. And I think it'll be interesting to talk about that moving forward because this isn't, this isn't a movie at all. This is something else. That's how Jared feels about Cabin in the Woods. Well, I, I am glad you brought that up, Austin. I, I do want to talk about that. Um, and, you know, like, did you hear about the James Cameron thing? I, I mean, he really just made, like, one pretty, like, unremarkable comment in that he said, like, look, I really hope that superhero fatigue sets in soon or else we're going to lose the medium entirely. Mm. Yeah. But, um, and, and he got a lot of flack for that. But I think it's an important discussion to have. And especially since, you know, yeah, we are all kind of like film nerds slash snobs here at this podcast and we're talking about this movie. And But yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, as far as uh, my opinions, I I like the movie. Uh, I thought that, I think to, uh, to Matthew's point, I appreciated that, yes, you know, in Guardians of the Galaxy and the Avengers, a lot of the comedy comes from undercutting dramatic moments. And I feel like this time they didn't do that as much. Uh, it was less with the bathos and more with just, you know, straight comedy. And I appreciated that. I'm not somebody who loves Marvel movies. I would say that I was not bored during this movie. I thought that Thanos was interesting. I thought Josh Brolin did a great job. Um, and overall, I, I can't really complain. At the end of the day, this, these movies are way better than they have to be. And it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to complain, you know, like, because none of them are bad and they could easily be bad. You know, like we, we have things that like, you know, the, the, the successful equivalent of this is like the big bang theory on TV. And that's God awful. It's just cynical to the nth degree. These movies are well thought out. You can tell that there's passion for the characters and, the one thing I really reflected on after seeing all these characters together is one of the most essential things that I think Marvel gets right that DC has not gotten right is something that seems rather elementary, but it's something that if you fuck up, it's going to haunt you and it's going to basically destroy your movie. And that is simply casting. These characters are, I mean, Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark, born to play it. Tom Holland as Spider-Man is probably the best Spider-Man yet. Mm -hmm. Um... Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange is awesome. I mean, I think that, uh, yeah, the casting is just so good and so precise and they just make the right decisions. All it's, that CGI is the Hulk couldn't be better. Couldn't be better, <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. Well, let me go into a short recap of the movie. So, after fleeing the destruction of Asgard, Thor's ship is intercepted by Thanos where he kills Loki, steals the second Infinity Stone and bests the Hulk. Banner, back at Earth, warns Doctor Strange and eventually the Avengers that Thanos is closing in on all of the Infinity Stones. While Thor seeks a weapon powerful enough to defeat Thanos, Thanos accumulates the Reality Stone and later sacrifices Gamora to achieve the Soul Stone. Doctor Strange uses the Time Stone to look into the future and he sees only one in 14 million realities where Thanos loses. He then gives Thanos the Time Stone in exchange for sparing Tony Stark's life. After failing to remove the Infinity Gauntlet off of Thanos, the Avengers land in Wakanda to defend the final stone from Thanos' army. Scarlet Witch attempts to destroy the Mind Stone, but is thwarted by Thanos, who takes it, thus completing the gauntlet. Thor almost kills Thanos, but not before Thanos snaps his finger and ends half of the life in the universe, including half of Disney's most profitable IP. End of movie. <laughs> 
So the first thing I want to talk about, uh, before we start talking about the pros and cons of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I just want to talk about Thanos. And I think that Matthew brought up a really good point about Thanos kind of functioning as the protagonist of the film. Um, I'm curious, did you guys, do you guys think that the hero's journey really does best apply to him versus the other characters? Oh yeah, hundred percent, definitely. I, I I have a question for you, Matthew. Actually, I um I, I'm not that familiar with the comics, but I had been someone had given me kind of a uh, my roommate Hunter had told me a summation of what uh, was going to happen, but he had told me that he did it because he was a, Thanos did it because he was in love with someone, and I think it was in, in love with the metaphysical concept of death herself, as she's personified in this. Sometimes human-looking woman, sometimes skull-faced-looking human, which actually looks a lot like Red Skull in the movie, uh, just a female version of that. And I was reading online uh, yesterday that the reason they didn't go in that direction wasn't so much that they're allergic to romantic interests, uh, which generally Marvel movies have been of late, but they hadn't introduced any of the metaphysical concepts, that whole extra level where eternity is personified and infinity is personified. And already this movie was so bloated that they did not want to add that extra layer of dissonance for the fans. See, to me, that actually, uh, like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of upset that I even knew that because hearing that, like, I was like, man, that sounds cool. Like, like the idea of someone trying to destroy the half the universe because he's in love. Like, I'm like, wow, what a, that's a cool twist, but a lot more relatable. Yeah. But not only that, but like in love with the concept of death in itself, I think also the name Thanos as, you know, reminiscent of Thanatos, the death drive is much more appropriate. I mean, the way that they uh, adapted it is still, I guess, you know, reminiscent of Thanatos in that he is driving toward death, but it's more of like this Malthusian thing of him wanting to have just enough resources for- yeah, It's the, almost like an environmental, weird environmental, uh, global global warming kind of uh, uh, argument, he's right? He's an <laughs> Yeah, he's yeah, just like, that, look, only half the people can survive with the resources we got. Sorry, humanity, <laughs> we got to kill half of you. Right. It's so interesting that you mentioned that, Matthew, about, um, you know, death personified and- and uh, Eternity and Infinity par, uh, personified. I'm not a huge comic book fan, but, um, you know, I've done, I've, I've watched like video essays and things like that. So I've kind of gained a little bit of knowledge about these various characters that were left out. But I am a philosopher. And the weird thing is, is that even though um, I watched the movie without knowing about this idea of death personified or, or eternity and infinity personified. All I could think about, because I do a lot of work in psychoanalysis, was um, the ancient, uh, well, I guess the debate, the kind of like forever debate about what is pleasure. And I was thinking actually about the ancient debate between Plato and Aristotle on the difference between pleasure. And uh, I, I saw Thanos as the sort of platonic uh, embodiment of platonic pleasure, which is the idea that you have this metaphysical groaning that is seeking harmony or what, you know, what Thanos calls balance. And so that the idea that pleasure is the alleviation of unpleasure, right? Or the release of tension and that Thanos or Thanos or Thanos, uh, he's seeing, uh, he, he, he senses this unpleasure or this out of balance-ness that needs to be corrected and, uh, projected into the metaphysical kind of within a platonic sense. And that's why uh, the deaths then are viewed um, as like kind of serving that ultimate end, that transcendent uh, big other goal of of pleasure. And that's why you get that release at the end when Thanos is sitting there and he, he has that joy that is just springing forth because he does feel that satisfaction, even if just for a fleeting moment, and we know there's a part two and, uh, and there are other things you know, things that the story has to kind of move move towards. This film, at least, really seemed to kind of fit within that. So even just from like a, a sort of non-Marvel experts viewing on it, but just kind of having a little bit of understanding about the history of myth and philosophy, this film really taps into a lot of that, which is really, I think, fascinating. Interesting, uh, because I wouldn't expect... Uh you to get that necessarily, because uh, when I was watching the end of the movie and Thanos has that smile on his face, you see at the end there's a hint of regret too that he's thinking, and you see him in the Soul Stone or wherever he is in that other level of reality, looking at his daughter Gamora as she was, and that's the thing he sacrificed. And you have to imagine he's questioning whether that sacrifice was uh, was worth it, whether he should have gone ahead with what he does. And like we talked about in the uh, Wisecrack edition, I don't think that satisfaction is what he has achieved. 
Mm. Yeah, well, satisfaction always leads to unsatisfaction, right? Uh, I think Don Draper says like, you know, like what is happiness? Happiness is the moment before you're unhappy again. And, uh, and I think that that fits within the pursuit of pleasure. And that's why for Plato, play, uh, pleasure never ultimately lasted permanently because uh, pl- uh, pleasure exists in the state of becoming in the material world and you can never fully alleviate it. But it's always that groaning to seek to alleviate it. So there's always the tension between satisfaction and unsatisfaction in the pursuit of pleasure. Let me ask you guys, do you guys buy his remorse over killing Gamora? Because I was almost identified with Gamora in that, when Red Skull said, you have to kill something you love in order to achieve the stone, Gamora's like, hey, well, you don't love anyone. And I was kind of on the same level. I was like, oh, yeah, it doesn't seem like he is a character who loves anyone, so he's fucked. And then apparently, then all of a sudden, it's revealed that he loves Gamora. But isn't it in Guardians of the Galaxy that, you know, uh, isn't like part of the themes or part of the arcs is that both her and her sister are basically like bastardized children who have been like neglected by their father? Well, Gamora wasn't neglected so much. She betrayed Thanos. She ran away. She was a renegade. And it was, she was always the favorite compared to Nebula, who time and time when they fought, Nebula would lose. She didn't have her father's favor. And so her father just butchered her, as you see in this movie, where she's more machine than man. Right. Okay. So I'm getting that wrong. Okay. Now, now, now it's, I got, I got a couple questions here. I mean, we can go like, we, we can go totally speculative considering that the uh, wisecrack quick take was totally speculative. We can go speculative on this podcast, right? Sure. Okay, so I, I heard a couple things. I heard one, that in the comics, Nebula actually plays a huge part in the ultimate defeat of Thanos. And then two, I heard that Thanos actually joins the Avengers. Is this true? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely uh, the first part is in Infinity Gauntlet, the Jim Sterling uh, comic that this is largely based off of. Thanos joining the Avengers. I cannot recall (laughs) that run. Uh, I must have missed those issues. <laughs> okay, yeah, I mean, I I watched like, uh, what was it, like a looper video or something like that, and they showed uh, something where at some point there's actually bits where Thanos is part of the Avengers. So what I'm thinking, I was wondering, I was like, so so somehow Tony Stark is going to save the day at the end because he's like the hero of all uh, the Marvel films, right? And somehow he's going to like convince Thanos to join them, to like reverse every everything and bring everybody back to life somehow through the power of these stones. That's that's what I was thinking, is, is that's where this is going. But I, I don't know. Yeah, that was my personal theory as well, considering, you're right, he is the protagonist. And I see so much of this as being based off of Hickman's run. And in Hickman's run, you don't have Thanos as God, but you do have another Marvel villain, Doctor Doom, who becomes absolute omnipotent, truly in the theological sense, God over all of existence, the entire multiverse or what's left of it. And he's not tricked. He's not beaten to death, uh, even though they take the Infinity Gauntlet themselves and T'Challa wields it, and even that is not enough to defeat Doom. What it is, is Doom recognizes begrudgingly that Reed Richards, a deontologist, is a better man than Doom is. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, who's Reed, Reed Richards? Is he Mr. Uh, he's Fantastic? Mr. Yeah, Mr. Fantastic. He's okay. unfortunately not in these yet. I'm really hoping Marvel gets the rights one of these days. Oh, that's that's the only reason he's not in. It's because they don't have the rights yet. Yeah, it's still, it's still <laughs> with yeah. Fox. Because Fox okay, really yeah. knows how to treat and the fucking, Fantastic Four rights. Oh, yeah, Superhero they, bureaucracy, man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, um, okay, okay, I gotcha. That's, this is so fucking complex, man. What the fuck? <laughs> I know, I love it. No, it's 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 super complex. I wish Daredevil could show up. But- so Matthew, at the end of the day, would you have preferred that they went? To, so I, I remember, like in an earlier draft of the Quick Take when we were when we were uh, working on it together, is uh, you had mentioned that in an earlier was it like at the end of the Avengers they almost like hint at Thanos's disposition toward uh, like. Uh, having a romantic affinity with death. Yeah, because his second in command in that uh, end credit sequence, uh, who's only known as the other, apparently, he says to Thanos uh, to invade Earth or to uh, fight the humans of Earth, something like that, is to court death. And that word court, Mm. you know, as in almost have a romantic courtship towards death. Uh, So that's what a lot of the fans were speculating. It was just going to be a straight adaptation. Yeah. By the way, I fucking loved that character, and I was so sad when he died. The 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 second in command of Thanos, you know, the 
hello, you must all sacrifice yourself to him. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, no, that's not the same character. He, oh. That's, that was Ebony Maw in this movie. Uh, the other died a few movies back. I believe it was one of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Oh, okay. Sorry. I can. Yeah, that, but they I, all I look agree, the same. Ryan. I, 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 I did like that character. That and, was and, awesome. and his fight with Doctor Strange was awesome. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so, Oh, no, keep going. Oh, I was just going to say, Ebony Maw and all of uh, the children of Thanos, those were all taken right from Hickman's run. And that was just more evidence that they weren't just pulling the new concepts from Hickman's run, but also his morality. Uh, within within the, the, the uh, crowd of people that are really into the comic books, that know all of these different runs and all of these interweaving storylines, is there ever frustration with the creative license that the directors and the writers of the Marvel films make with how they amalgamate these things? Like, is it ever like, Yeah, wh- I always wonder, like, how do they do it and do they do it well? I'm sorry, yeah. Yeah, Matthew, what, what do you think is the biggest offense that the MCU has done so far? The biggest offense? You know, I for someone who loves the comics, I really don't have too much of a problem with any of the casting decisions they made, any of the changes. One of the biggest changes was it, in the comics is Hank Pym, who is the creator of Ultron. And that is what he is most notorious for, not even his being Ant-Man or Giant-Man. It's he created Ultron. In the movies, it's Tony Stark. But that absolutely makes more sense for his overall character arc within the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He was trying to build a shield of armor around the world because Tony is the futurist at his core. That is who he is as a character in the comics and in the movies. Tony is the only one who saw the Battle of New York as a thing that's going to keep on happening. He saw the beginning of Avengers Infinity War before anyone else did. That's why he created Ultron, so that when whoever sent Loki showed up, Earth would be protected. So I think it was a good change. I think I would really have to rack my brain to come up with, you know, a negative change that, you know, the Yeah, well, I mean, even the, fact that you, even the fact that you have to rack your brain is pretty amazing. And, and I would say pretty, like, you know, hands off to Kevin Feige. He certainly knows what he's doing. Oh, yeah, he does. Agreed. Yeah. Who, who, who's Kevin Feige? Is he the producer he's, of this whole thing? He's the mastermind he's producer the mastermind. behind phase one through four so far. <laughs> yeah, between all 19 of those movies. Um, before we go on to the next point, I just want to ask everybody, I want to go around, what's your favorite Marvel uh, of the 19? What's your favorite one? Let's start with Ryan. And Deadpool does not count, right? I would say Deadpool does not count. Uh, just of the MCU extended universe uh, movies. Then Guardians of the Galaxy. One? Yeah. Okay. What about uh, you, Matthew? Uh, it's got to be Winter Soldier. Okay. Really? All right. Austin, is there an answer? Does Logan count? Nope. No. No. Oh, Logan. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't be wrong. <laughs> um, fuck, man. I mean, I'm Black Panther or this one. Okay. What's yours, Jared? I really liked Spider-Man Homecoming. Wow. All right. Have you seen it? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I loved Iron Man 3. I, want to I like Iron Man there. 3. I mean, a lot of them are good. Like, I never go into these movies with high expectations, but I end up leaving saying, like, wow, that was way better than A, I thought it was B, and B, it needed to be, you know? Can, can I say who my least favorite Avenger is? It's uh, Scarlet Witch. Uh, just because I, uh, for me, when you bring magic into it, I just kind of, like, like, somehow I can wrap my magic? brain around. Magic? What about Doctor Strange? Yeah, but somehow the fact that he's a wizard guy that learned all that stuff makes more sense than just kind of her kind of being possessed a little bit. I don't know, in reality. Yeah, what is mm-hmm. her deal? What's, what, what is her power? Like, why is she possessed? Well, that's another change from the comics to the movies. In the comics, she really does just have a mutant ability to control chaotic magic. In the movies, she has a little bit of telepathy, a little bit of telekinesis. Yeah, it just seems like it comes out of nowhere. And and every time I see her, I'm like, oh, I didn't know you could do that, you know? If I recall, Baron Von Strucker was experimenting with the scepter, which was the Mind Stone. So her powers come from the Infinity Stones, which is why she was able at the end of the movie, the only one able to destroy the Mind Stone that was powering Vision. Wow, see, that didn't come to my mind. My my least favorite is um, Scarlett Johansson's character. I don't know why she grates me so much. She doesn't do much. Yeah, in this film, she didn't do much She doesn't do much Mm -hmm. in general. It bothers me. So, okay, Matthew, why doesn't she have a Russian accent? Does the character have a Russian accent? I always read her as having a Russian accent when I was reading the comic books. Right? It's just like like Scarlett Johansson just doesn't even try. You know, <laughs> it's a shame. Yeah, I remember being disappointed when Iron Man 2 first came out and it was just an American accent through and through. Yeah, I think that uh, 
Yeah, she's not my favorite character. Um, all right, so let's talk about the ending. So Ryan said something, and, and I want to hear kind of what you got, how you guys, re- you know, everyone's saying that after they left the movie, they felt really sad. It really just hit them like a ton of bricks. Call me cynical, but I think that just the business model of these Marvel films just inherently undercuts any real drama that that produces. We know that there are going to be more of these movies. We know that Black Panther just made a billion dollars and that Chadwick Bosman has two more movies in his contract. We know they're going to use that fucking time stone to undo this shit, probably. We know something is going to happen. These deaths are not going to be permanent. There's no way. Um, so that, I mean, that cheapened it for me. And I'm curious, did you guys feel that way or you guys were just into it? I, I definitely, as it was happening, I'm like, whoa, does that mean we're like, it, it, this is either really bold or we're never going to see them again. And hell yeah, for Marvel for doing this. But then I had that moment where I was like, there's no way. There's, there's no, no way. way. Like, like, uh, and then I kind of remembered the Dr. Strange thing, you know, where, where, you know, he's like, Hey, Tony, it was the only way. Trust me. Meaning. In my mind, it's like he knows that this is going to be undone because there's uh, why you know I, I don't feel like he's ma- he's playing the yeah, chess game. Disney of, doesn't burn money, and with half right. of those people's dying, they're literally burning billions of dollars. <laughs> like that just doesn't happen. I was just gonna say, like I'm not a businessman, but when you have a billion dollar asset, you don't burn half a half a billion of it. You know, uh, yeah. the burning of the half a billion has to work towards some sort of return on investment. So in a well, weird right. sort the of way. The return on the investment is that this is the highest grossing movie <laughs> exactly. of all time. Uh, exactly. They're going to make $4 billion maybe. Yeah, but that's it. small potatoes compared to making two more Black Panther movies and, you know, another Doctor Strange movie and yeah. all that stuff. You no, know? I agree. They're going to come F- back. And five more Avengers films over the next 20 years of our lives and uh, right. moving I will whatever. say, I was thinking that as... Each and every one of them died as Peter Quill died, as Black Panther died. But Tom Holland, you know, him dying in Tony Stark's arms, just as an actor, he sold the emotion to me, even knowing there's going to be another Spider-Man yeah, That was amazing. That was that amazing. Was and scene. another another amazing thing that the MCU has done is that we didn't see in at least uh, other Spider-Man movies is, you know, the fact that Peter Parker doesn't have a father and that Tony Stark filling the surrogate father figure is so powerful and so smart. Like, I, yeah. I, I mean, hats off to Marvel for, uh, you know, I'll, it, it's so easy to clunkily, like, join all of these IP together and just make it like a shit show of just all these different characters that don't really complement each other in any way. But particularly with Spider-Man and Iron Man, I think that uh, it just, you know, it heightens it. There was audible sobbing in my theater. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, when, when Tony Stark gets run through as well, like literally the entire audience was like, <gasps> I mean, yeah. because everyone so expected many- that to be real based on the contracts and everything. They expected yeah, him to right, die. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. I actually thought Tony Stark would die because I'm like, oh, no one, they don't want to pay Robert Downey $20 million anymore. Well, that was my next point question to you is that while I do think they're not going to give up these properties, obviously, I mean, on a, on a practical standpoint, these people can't be these characters forever. And I don't think a lot of them want to be anymore. It's like, so are, are they going to do a thing where they pass the baton or are they going to kill them off straight up? I doubt it, but how are they going to do this? Well, I don't know. So as frustrated, I mean, this is my personal opinion that's based on largely nothing. But my personal opinion is that these actors, there's no alternative. There's no other life in the movies for them. And this goes more to like the, the discussion <laughs> I want to- prisons of this Marvel well, contract. No, if, if they want to be successful, famous movie actors, you're either in a superhero movie or you're obscure. Like that's, you know, if unless you want to do TV- and you know maybe they do want to do TV, but I mean, but they're also they got a pretty sweet thing going. You know, they could Daniel Day Lewis it and just go live on yeah, the island Daniel and be a cobbler. Day-Lu- yeah, but Daniel Day Lewis is he's like Austin. He's like a Buddhist monk. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, but like you know, most celebrities when they get rich, their cost of living skyrockets, and they do, and they just keep working because they want to maintain this lavish lifestyle. So more money, more problems. More money, more problems. I think for it's because sure. they, they they would like the attention and want to be in the limelight more. I mean, the, the, a lot of these people could literally just stop working and never work a day in their life, and they know it. You know, Robert Downey Jr. made fifty million dollars in one Avengers movie. Yeah, but then they have to sell their yacht. You know, no, they can't like you know. <laughs> you, you act like they're all like once they become millionaires, they immediately just start you know burning through it all. You know? I think. I mean, I don't know that, but I think that that is a a, a tendency. No, they can always jump ship to the DC universe. 
Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> they want to keep on being superheroes. If, if that's if that's still happening, their their decisions are making decisions for them in the sense that they're kind of locked into keep keep reproducing these characters simply because they've already raised the stakes so high for themselves and their living standards have followed suit. And so for them to like fall back into <laughs> indie films would just like not work. Is that what you think? I, I don't believe that Robert Downey Jr. goes, "Oh shit, man! If I don't make this next Avengers movie, I'm going to lose all my my yachts and stuff." I believe that they go. Man, I want to be in the line. I want to be Iron Man for the world for the you know the, in in the zeitgeist for a while. You Maybe. Know? Well, I mean, what about like know. the dude that plays Jeeves Vision? I forgot his name. Paul Bettany. What about Paul Bettany? He's not he's not making fifty million on a movie. He's making maybe like one and a half, two million. Oh man, I, I think that's probably I think probably less, but. What yeah, I, I mean, I, I think Marvel in general is very cheap, and that's unless pre-tax. it's an A-list actor. You yeah, know? so let's let's say he makes two million. That's pre-tax. Then he's got to pay his agent. He's got to pay his manager. He's got to pay for his his house. Now, granted, he's married to Jennifer Connelly, or at least he was. So they've got incomes coming in. But now we're still talking that they're only making about what a million, million and a half on, oh, on a poor movie. Guys. And, and how many movies? Right, but if his mortgage, but if his mortgage is insane, like according to Jared's theory, right? He's also driving a nice car. He's got a big car payment. I can kind of see yeah. it. I can yeah, see it, man. No. And this yeah, is why. Dude, like if you're if you're yeah. if you're buying a nice house in L.A., a million dollars ain't shit. Okay, yeah, but these are the small cars we're talking about. We're talking about the big ones. These guys that we saw to get disintegrated in front of our eyes the other day. You know, the huge ones. I mean, it's all speculation, but sure. I, I want to ask. So, you know, if we think about a TV show, you know, you, we can basically say that you know, there's 19 movies. They're very serialized. You know, there was that. Uh, I don't know if you guys heard about this notorious review in the New Yorker that has pissed off a lot of Marvel fans, in which basically they have a very scathing review of Infinity War. And, and this is not this is not satire. It's the New Yorker, but this is a straight-faced review. And they say that this movie sucks because there's no character introductions. All of the character action is based on previous knowledge. And like every Marvel fan in the world is like, duh, you're so out of touch. And I think that they're and I think they have a point. Um, Wait, who has a point? Who has a point? The fans or the, the New Yorker? The fans. Oh yeah. no! I was going to say the fans. Oh, I want to say the New Yorker. I mean, like, like. But uh, this is more to Austin's point. How cinema's dead. Like, the, what Marvel has done is, is they've changed the game. Like, right. th- this is this is serialized cinema uh-huh. or serialized movies. Yeah, it's a different thing. Well, and it's and it's telling that the directors are are from TV too, and I think that's why they were able to handle this as well as they did because that's their shtick. You know, you handle multiple characters over a long period of time. And it isn't about just a, you know, a three-act structure and you have this nice little neat package. It's much more about elongating this and building these characters over an extended period of time. And 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 it's successful and we're used to that because we binge watch our TV shows now on Netflix. And then, of course, if you're a comic book fan, you're used to the long game. So this film kind of fits into that in, in, this, in this weird way. And that's why I said it's not a movie. It's a sort of episodic adventure. And that's what you get. You get these... These episodes, you know, you have the Thor episode and then you have the Guardians episode and then you have their like intertwining and then you have the episode where the Guardians meet up with the Iron Man episode and each of these episodes and they all kind of come together at the end, but they all revolve around the villain who's really the protagonist in this film, who has the arc, so to speak. I don't mean the protagonist in the way that we think of it as the good guy, but in the way that it's his arc that is the one that kind of cuts through everything. And so it really reverses a lot of typical structures that we get. In, in the film world and it kind of works. And the question is how and why does it work and what does that mean moving forward? It definitely works. And I don't mean to th- say that I, I don't think the fans have a legitimate case either. I think both sides have a case. I mean, from a just general film standpoint, you know, it, it, usually before now you go into a movie and you're, you're introduced to everybody, you figure out the problem, the conflict, and then an hour and a half later, everything's wrapped up. And now here, I agree with the New Yorker that, yeah, I mean, if you go into this movie blind without, if this is your first Marvel movie, <laughs> You'd be totally lost. Yeah, but I mean, that's more or less the state that Austin was in, right? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And you and you still Wait, enjoyed it, you right? You had never seen a Marvel movie before Infinity War. I had seen Black Panther and I saw the first Avengers, and that's it. Oh, what the fuck? <laughs> and and you weren't like, oh my god, what the fuck is going on? I mean, it's it's no. pretty clear, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I fell asleep during like the first Captain America. <laughs> um, 
Oh, so, okay. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> yeah on, an, on an airplane. Um, so, I, like, I've started a couple of these things before because I felt like I just owed it to culture to do so. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I went in relatively blind. And Wow, that's very interesting. Okay, because yeah. we, we, we went through the list before this movie. I'd seen everything but Thor The Dark World. Uh, Jared's seen everything but two. What? I've, I've, I've seen all of them except Thor The Dark World, and I haven't seen The Incredible Hulk. And Matthew, how many have you seen them all? Oh, I've seen them all and a few multiple times. Okay. But to the New Yorker point, then, first of all, I don't imagine there's a whole lot of overlap in the, you know, Venn diagram between New Yorker subscribers and comic book fans. I think it just might be me, honestly. So they're speaking to their audience, you know, and they're warning them, hey, this is going to be the best-selling movie of all time, but maybe you don't have to be contributing to those ticket sales. So I, I can see why they're doing that. Yeah, good point. Yeah. So how do we differentiate this between like a TV show? So let's take a TV show like The Walking Dead. Now, I don't want to give any spoilers, but like characters die in The Walking Dead. And, you know, when they die, they don't come back, even though let's say that, uh, let's just say character X. Now, I'm sure that, uh, you know, the studio or the, the network that makes The Walking Dead probably makes a good amount of money making action figures from character X, but they kill them off and they stay dead. But what is it about, like the Disney business model or this thing that makes us certain that they're not, that they are coming back and that it's not going to be like The Walking Dead or it's not going to be like how we normally handle deaths in television. I think the history of comic books is instructive because comics, even long before the death of Superman in the early 90s, constantly kill off the main heroes, the ones that are headlining books. And it's just another few years till there's a resurrection. And despite what, you know, was said to Loki, there are going to be resurrections and not just of individual characters, whole universes get resurrected. Every five years or so nowadays, the DC Comics entire multiverse gets destroyed, rebooted. You're going to see this eventually happen with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Eventually, I don't know if it's going to be five, 10, 20 years from now, they're going to say, hey, people loved the classic Avengers characters, your Thor, your Captain America, your Iron Man, those actors' contracts expired long ago. We don't have the Fantastic Four, the X-Men that we're making films of anymore after phase four, five, six. Let's reboot it all. Let's say the Marvel Cinematic Universe is over. This is the brand new Marvel Cinematic Universe 2.0. It's, it's going to happen. It's just a matter yeah, of when. Yeah, that's the, not absolutely. The, the, the amazing Spider-Man syndrome of, of the whole MCU is going to happen. It's going to be the amazing MCU. Yeah, if, You're if saying, yeah, there's yeah, a, the- If there's a parallel, it's with soap operas, right? Like, you know, you kill off a person and then they come back as the evil twin, but then it turns out that the person didn't really die, but they've just been hiding out for a long time because someone else was trying to get them. Or someone falls into a coma and then they're gone for like six months, but then they come back. I mean, this is basically, it's like that, the the ups and downs of the dopamine rush that you get from those simple kinds of storylines. And you can do that probably endlessly. Well, no, Matthew is saying that they'll literally wipe the slate clean and just say, you know, kind of like they did with Amazing Spider-Man and then just say, all right, those movies don't exist now. Here's a new universe. Oh, yeah, yeah, eventually. And it's just like you said, like they did with Spider-Man, right? Where they have like the Tobey Maguire and then they have the Andrew Garfield and now they have the Tom Holland. And it's like, okay. But the important distinction is that when it happens in the Marvel MCU, it'll be a consistent world. It's just that in this universe, one reality dies and a new one is created. That's what you're saying. You're saying, you're saying it is within the same universe. It's just that because there's a whole reality element. Right. Like, there, there, there's like, in, like new. between Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man, and Andrew Garfield, Spider-Man, like there's no like two New Yorks. Exactly. You know, they're, they're, they're two totally separate things. They don't that's connect. What I, that, that's what we, I was saying. No, this, an option. Is, this is going to be like, there. oh, there in are two. In the story. This, yes, there are two dimensions. That's what know? I hope happens more well, than the first Well, that's what's going to happen, I, I think. Like if they do have new Captain Americas and new Iron Mans, it's going to be consistent with in the narrative of the MCU. It's all going to be the same thing. If they keep the comic book conventions, that's what they'll do. Like, uh, it'll be the ultimate comics from the early 2000s where they wanted to get new viewers in, so they just rebooted everything without getting rid of the old MCU. And eventually they said, okay, they're both part of the greater Marvel universe. You know, one is Earth 616, the other is 1610, and they Mm. can interact with one another somehow. Whether it's going to be that or Flashpoint from the Flash TV series where it's just time travel reboot, 
Who knows how it will happen? So when when do we get to the point of diminishing returns where we can no longer do this? I mean that both in terms <laughs> of story, but also in terms of like from from a filmic perspective, from a cinematic perspective. Like how does money this end? Yeah, I mean, so it's a $400 million investment. I, I mean, right now there's no end in sight. Right, I, but I feel like it's it's got to be, right? I mean- or is it endless growth? I just I don't understand. I would have figured that literally eight movies ago. I mean, around <laughs> Avengers 1, once... I mean, think about how crazy Avengers 1 was. It was like, wow, they've been building up to this for forever, you know? Like, that was like a crazy thing. Uh, uh, it felt like a whole lifetime since since Iron Man 1. And now here we are, it's like, well, that was like fucking forever ago. One interesting, like, that it happened with Transformers. Like, Transformers 6 was the breaking point. Like, all Transformers 1 through 5 were all blockbusters, and then the one where they go back in time to the fucking time of King Arthur <laughs> tanked just out of nowhere. Like, it, yeah. it was, it, it proved that even things that, I mean, I think the Marvel Cinematic Universe is different, and, and the reason why I think it's different, I think that this, uh, I think this exhaustion with the material would have happened a lot earlier if the movies weren't as good as they are. Mm. I mean, I think that that's- Absolutely, yeah. and, and, that, and all credit to Kevin Feig and all the talent he assembles, because yeah. I would blame Transformers 6 on- one man named Michael Bay. Yeah, who and just, you're, abs you're yeah. absolutely right. But I mean, you know, Michael Bay was operating under the assumption it's like, oh man, as long as I explode shit, you know, I can just keep making these movies and make billions for the rest of my life. But eventually people did get tired. But of I it. don't think that, I do think that that, that uh, Transformers 6 made money though. Yeah, probably in China, but not at least domestically. And ultimately, yeah, that's all that matters. Ultimately, that, ultimately that is what matters. But I mean, I'm it's certainly not good news for Michael Bay to realize no. that, you know, his numbers are down. That's not- yeah. And did yeah. Black Panther make more money than Avengers? Oh yeah, definitely. But Black Panther's top three movies, I think, ever at this point. As a solo origin film. So, and he's a very minor character compared to some of the more famous Avengers that were introduced earlier. So Marvel definitely has it within their capacity to keep introducing B-listers, C-listers. I mean, look at Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, who that was like a, who they that was were. a joke. Yeah. yeah. And they're getting the X-Men, presumably. Uh, that's what the rumor is that they've negotiated with Fox. So once the X-Men get into the cinematic universe, that's going to extend it. Phase four, five, six. Yeah, that, it's going to be a while. 19 movies. <laughs> I, I, have to, I have to admit it. I was I was in a good mood before this podcast started and now I'm angry. I literally, oh. you have angered me in this discussion. You this, don't like the idea of, of no. X-Men versus Avengers? No, no. I, I, so I want to transition this conversation to what does the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Disney's current business model, what does it do to the state of cinema? So I'm, I'm assuming this is transitioning into your anger, Austin. I, I, I can't even talk right now. I literally have no thoughts. I just have anxiety. I literally, I'm physically anxious right now. This is really weird. It's you guys just talking about billions and return on investment. All I can see are like numbers flying in my head right now. And my brain is, my Marxist brain is like exploding. I'm like, ah! <laughs> The corruption of art just simply through commodification. God damn it. You don't think both can exist alongside each other? I mean, in the past few exactly. years, we've gotten Whiplash, we've gotten La La Land, we've gotten these great artistic, true pieces of cinema, and we've Thank also you, gotten the big budget stuff. Yeah, yeah. So here's what I'll say. Um, you know, there's a, a famous line by uh, William Goldman, who's a, 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 like a, a kind of a guru screenwriter. Um, and he had a, this famous line that in Hollywood, nobody knows anything. And I think I was, uh, we talked about this in our Far Fargo podcast a little bit in that when Fargo came out, it was just a chance that the studio took. It was this weird script. Nobody knew that it was going to, and it hit, you know, like it was a, it was a cheap movie to make and it made its investment back fivefold. Now, granted, it probably only cost like 30 million to make and, oh, maybe probably not fivefold. It probably cost like 30 million to make and maybe it made like 120 or something like that. You know, it was a small, I mean, compared to the, the profits that we're seeing in the Avengers. But the point was, is that studios looked at Fargo and the success of Fargo and said, wow, you know, nobody knows what's going to succeed. So we should take chances. And I think one of the tragedies that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has proven is that that's not true anymore. People know. It's not that nobody knows anything anymore. It's people know what's going to win. And what wins is IP. And it's sad to me. And I think a lot of this also has to do with data. Because the studios are so ingrained in data and knowing exactly what they want. And with our hyper-connected society, they have aligned directly to their fans. They're able to know exactly what people want. And they can just give people what they want. And I think that that's really harmful to creativity because... Now, first of all, the business model has changed where there are much fewer movies made outside of Netflix these days because people want to make, you know, these movies that cost $300 million to make but make $2 billion back. 
they would rather just focus all their efforts on that than make small Fargos and stuff, especially when it's a sure shot, which these Marvel movies have proven to be. So I do think that it is harmful to the creativity and the creative spirit of cinema because no one takes chances because there's no reason to anymore. There's no I, reason to make a Fargo. I, uh, I disagree with most everything you just said. Okay. <laughs> but the one thing I do agree is that if you're talking about the theatrical cinematic experience, then yes, like the, the, the Marvel, what they're doing, I mean, they're basically making it to where, yeah, a, a, a theatrical Fargo is not going to happen, but a, but a Fargo, like you just said, on Netflix happens every fucking day, you know? Like there are, the, I'm so optimistic about the state of cinema if you count online because so much cool shit's getting made all the fucking time for very low budgets, you know, and they're getting their own niche followings and they're being supported, which could never have happened on a theatrical release business model. You know, it was well, just- today it can't. Today it can't, but it was only a very small period of time for like 15 years in the 70s where really where people were uh, you know and a little bit in the 90s yeah, the too. Harvey Weinstein era. Yeah, yeah. and stuff uh, uh, where the, the resurgence you know of independent cinema but that's rare and that was a moment in time and and now that is happening online and I think that that's awesome and like Matthew was just saying it can, you can uh, take both where basically yeah theatrical movies are going to turn into roller coaster rides you know and uh, and then you're going to be getting all the cool brainy stuff on online and that's just going to be how it goes and I and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing it sucks because it is every movie is better in a theater but you know fads change well, not man. only is it better in a theater but I would argue that the medium and today more than the medium it's the platform dictates what the content is so yeah, I would argue lot, I, I, would, I would argue that if movies are made to be watched on your phone or on your iPad or even on Netflix on your small TV I think that inherently, or I think that it's inevitable that things just start blending together and movies and episodic TV and documentary series just become content. Is that a bad thing? I think it is because then if we're talking about cinema as a particular discipline, that, as a, you know- As a two hour, hour and a half well, to two hour- As a two hour thing that- Story that, with that, three that, acts and- that, Yeah, that is not something that you watch in the background while you're doing dishes as ambience. It's something that you watch in a dark theater that, you know, is optimized for a large screen where details matter, where rhythm matters, where sound design, you, where subtlety matters. These are the things that are going to die with Netflix. Well, right. But then also another thing with that is that, you know, the don't you think that that's more of a per, people, it's not like Marvel made that happen. It's like people, their uh, their tastes have changed and now people like to do a different shit. And well, I think that technology has basically just brainwashed people into, I mean, basically technology has diminished our, uh, you know, our ability to, our attention spans. Technology's diminished our attention spans. It's not that people say, oh, I don't like that anymore. It's that, you know, we have flashing, you know, spectacles put in front of us that we get addicted to and then like our tastes change because of that. Yeah. Right. And this is, that's my big concern with this is the effect that it has on social relations. Because I think we're still speaking in the abstract about like what this is going to do for the the particular form of media that we call cinema or film or uh, visual image or something like that. But if we just kind of broaden it out and think of this as a social activity, which is what it is, it's 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 an artistic expression that is conveying feelings, emotions. It's uh, delving in interpersonal conflicts. I mean, the reason that this film, I think, was actually so successful to me is because even though I hadn't watched the buildup of these characters and their relationships and the tensions, like, I knew enough. Like, I've watched video essays and I've read reviews, so I kind of know what the, the Avengers had a falling out, and I know I know about, like, some of the, the budding romances and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so it still got me in the feels because there was still a human story that was on display. And that's what storytelling is. And ultimately, this is a, a form of storytelling that is supposed to have some sort of social function. And I don't mean that in the limiting sense, like it must have a social function to create cohesion so that we have a better society. But I mean, simply, if you look at the history of humanity, ontologically, there's no difference between Avengers and myth-making stories uh, that you've had from thousands and thousands of years ago. They do something that that is essentially human. And my worry is, is when art becomes commodified and is simply serving the dopamine rush, the stimulation of pleasure for that fleeting moment to just give you satisfaction, what that does is it front loads the purpose of storytelling. And I think this is kind of what Jared is talking about. The medium transforms the content and in the way that the medium transformed the content from, from a sort of social critic perspective is that profit is what transforms the content, which means that all they're trying to feed you are Easter eggs. So you can sit there in the audience and you could be like, oh, I recognize that Easter egg. 
Boom, dopamine rush. Oh, there's a character that I know that reminds me of my childhood. Boom, dopamine rush. Oh, there's another bit of pleasure. Ooh, pleasure. Ooh, pleasure. And you See, just become these machines for consuming these things to make yourselves happy. And that is a social problem for me, like a big problem. But I think that that that, that Marvel knows, uh, I mean, I think that, 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 that what you just described exists in pop culture for sure. But I think Marvel knows that it has to be fucking good at the end of the day. I mean, all their movies have super high, Rotten Tomato ratings, you know, and they they realize that that is the ultimate dopamine rush. Whenever you can go, hey man, you you need to go watch this movie, and you genuinely mean it to all your friends, you know. And right, but why? But go see it because your fucking dopamine was. Well, see the Pulsin. thing I would disagree with Pulsin. The thing I would <laughs> the thing I would disagree with Austin is I think that art has always been about the dopamine rush. I think the tragedy is that we've just become so efficient at stimulating that dopamine that it's scary. I think that's why it was so exciting when there was rumors that Quentin Tarantino was going to direct the next Star Trek because the fact of the matter is intellectual property is what gets butts in the seats. That time has changed to where that is the fact now. But having an auteur direct it, you know, we can still have someone with vision to ensure that this is cinema in addition to commercially viable. Yeah, that's why people were excited when Edgar Wright was supposed to do Ant-Man, right? Oh, I wish. Right. Yeah. Me too. Right? Me too, man. I just saw the new trailer after this for Ant-Man and Wasp or whatever, and I was like, Jesus, that looks awful. And I was thinking, like, how cool would it have been? Like, how cool would it have been if Edgar Wright took over that? Yeah, because Edgar Wright doesn't want to make movie by committee. Right. Wait a minute, where the fuck was Paul Rudd in this movie? He was there, yeah, dude. He was just he really small. Come on, you didn't see him. <laughs> he had. Uh, yeah, well, what? They had a line that said he had taken the deal because his uh, family had too much pressure on them from the accords. Him and there was another one that was written out too. I don't recall. Yeah, don't they say something at one point? Like, they said something at one point, like, oh, there's an ant and a something. Didn't they say that at some point? Or was that a trailer? Uh, that was a different point. Else? But uh, yeah, uh, it was Haw- uh, Hawkeye that was also uh, his family decided, hey, oh, yeah. yeah, we got to surrender to the government with the accords. Are there like contractual reasons for, like, is there some sort of other reason why they weren't in the movie other than whatever the narrative reason was? I avoided so many spoilers. Like, until the day before, I didn't even know it was a two parter. Uh, so yeah, I have oh, no wow. idea about any contractual reasons for that. It does seem odd. All right. So one other thing I wanted to bring up. So I remember seeing this clip on the internet a long time. I don't know how you guys feel about Bill Maher. It's not really relevant, but on his show, you know, he, at the end of his show, he does that like final thought or whatever, or maybe that's Jerry Springer. Either way. Um, he said that, uh, he was criticizing the ubiquity of superhero movies. He was talking about how it used to be that during the summertime, we rewarded ourselves with dumb movies. Now he says it's dumb movies all the time. But more than that, he said that this obsession with superhero movies propels us to seek idols and believe that our problems can be solved by an individual, that we're all kind of looking for Superman. And then he made the, what one might consider egregious leap to uh, say that like, you know, this kind of disposition is, you know, what leads to, you know, like strong man, people like Trump, that people, you know, like say like, oh, this man, single man can fix all my problems. I think it's an interesting point. I think that it's mostly conjecture. I don't really have any reason to believe that there is any kind of causation between those two, but I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on that. If there's any other, like this obsession with superheroes and the fact that basically superheroes are taking over pretty much all of our entertainment, at least our theater entertainment. Uh, Do you think that there's any kind of other ramifications like that? I mean, we got to be careful with correlation and causation here, right? But right. there is there is an interesting correlation between the uh, increase of opioid addiction, depression diagnosis, anxiety diagnosis, pharmaceutical medication. Uh, we're in the midst of a global financial depression that, trust me, for people out there that are thinking the economy is doing well, it's not. Yeah, unemployment is low, but people dropping out of the workforce is at uh, accelerating at a crazy rate. People are like, oh, but more black people are employed. No, more black people are dropping out of the workforce. The unemployment numbers are skewed. Um, our debt is mounting like crazy. People feel the anxiety. Precarity at work is higher than it's ever been. There are some serious tensions that are simmering beneath the surface, and I think there's a felt sense of that. And so that's why these films are so wonderful, because they do give you that alleviation. They do kind of give you a bit of, of satisfaction in the midst of anxiety. Um, so you're just saying I pure wonder, escapism. I, I mean, I think that I think in a lot of ways, movies are always a form of escapism. And like you just said a minute ago, I do think is a form of escapism. But when it becomes just a reactionary escapism to hide from the anxieties, that's when it becomes oppressive in the psychoanalytics uh, 
sense. And that's when it becomes problematic because you're repressing, if you will, these anxieties that you, that you ought to be able to try to work through and we can't do that. And so I don't know that there's a causal effect there, but it is curious to note that there are these social anxieties that, that are emerging uh, at an exponential rate uh, in correlation to the increase of these types of films that are, are producing greater heights, if you will, of, of pleasure. I, I don't know the answer, but it is curious to look at. I, I think it's one of those psychological things where it's the only movies that are coming out where you know exactly what you're going to get, like like in terms of if you're bringing your full family to the theater or whatever. You know, you're not taking a gamble. It's just like, all right, Marvel, I see that that name and I, I know I'm going to have fun and that there's going to be good, good jokes and crazy effects. Whereas pretty much any other movie, I can't think of any other thing that comes out where you're just like, you can, you have that much assurance that you're going to have fun. To Bill Maher's point about looking to some other hero to step in and save you, uh, I've been a fan of superheroes, whether straight up comic book heroes or fantasy heroes or sci-fi heroes in every medium across my life. What used to be called nerd culture. And what always <laughs> struck me as odd was that so few of my uh, Confederates really found inspiration in these stories. Like for me, I have always wanted to go be the vigilante superhero like Phoenix Jones. Like I try hitting the gym. I try like, you know, becoming these things, <laughs> emulating them. I read these stories in comics. I watch these movies and I'm inspired. I watch superhero movies at the gym every day on the treadmill, like, because that gets me <laughs> <Wow>. moving. <laughs> and that is definitely not the case for most people. And I don't understand the disconnect there where it's escapist and not inspiration. Yeah, my homie used to, when he was at the gym on the treadmill, he used to pretend like he loved like Bourne movies and James Bond movies. And he used to pretend when he was running on the treadmill that he had like a bomb on his back, that he had to get it out of the city. And he had to run as fast as he could when he would get really tired to get the bomb out of the city. So I can see how it would be inspirational uh, in that way. It is very particularly American, though, right? There is something interesting about this. Not that they don't have, like, uh, hero characters in other cultures, but there is something interesting about how the American superhero is purely individualistic and about your own growth and your own inspiration. And it's never about making the world actually better. It's always about solving the problem, but it's not about changing the social structures. Batman doesn't go in and donate all of his money or uh, support some sort of political candidate to actually institute better social services, <laughs> right? It's like, I'm just going to be a reactionary to solve the problems and to save people because the world is fucked. So there's a nihilism that undercuts Is there undercuts a genuine it. collectivist superhero? There needs to be a superhero of the left. Well, there used to be the authority uh, by Mark Millar. <laughs> that he definitely takes that on, uh, that exact issue where they do try to transform society. Miracle Man <laughs> by uh, Alan Moore, he completely transforms society. Let's, and let's actually make Batman, those into movies. In Batman Inc., where he tries to solve crime. And he says, okay, the problem to systemic crime or the solution to that problem is just more Batman everywhere internationally. <laughs> so you don't think that Thanos transforms society? I think he definitely <laughs> oh, did at the Christ. end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. Maybe he's the uh, he's the uh, the superhero of the left. Um, no, that's actually dark. I, we didn't get to talk much about it, but it would have been really interesting to kind of get into like what was his motivation and, and I know we're running long, but there's some really interesting stuff because there are current trends in the subculture of the alt-right that are actually kind of arguing for this as well and this idea of depopulating the Earth is something that has existed across the political spectrum throughout history, and it's a really interesting yeah. thing to kind of work well, there's through. There's people like, on the left too, on the environmental. Oh yeah, that's side. why. That's why I said across the political spectrum. Yeah, yeah. But what, like what currently in like the alt right, there's something. That's, yeah, go ahead. D dev is that what it's called? I don't know. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Like de-development, de-development. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. There have been a couple. Even on our quick take, there have been a couple comments of like Thanos isn't crazy. He's just ahead of the curve. <laughs> that's right. No, really. Yeah. Like there, there are a lot yeah. of people that do think like, hey, we've got. 7 billion people on the planet. We're slated to have 10 billion by 2050. We need to be operating at like two and a half to three billion, you know? So <laughs> what's the what's the humane way of calling? I think we're going to um, figure that out. You know, yeah, well, so we always have in the past. We've, I mean, everyone was scared about the population boom, you know, 30 years ago. I, I have this we mystical that belief that the, the earth just either makes people depressed or like makes them less horny. The, the earth is going to make sure that the population stays, you know, it's, it's going to sterilize people, something it's going to like give people these mental diseases or it's going to make us so alienated from each other that the we happening. don't breed. That, now yeah. that is very, that is Malthusian. <laughs> That's literally what Thomas Malthus talks about. He talks about well, that there we when go. things, when we 
to get overpopulated. He's like, something will happen, famine or pestilence. He said, or there'll be some sort of correction that will make it so that we can operate the, at the levels of subsistence again so that we're not, we don't have too many people. And one of the things he said is that what if people stop getting married and stop having children? And so, because he was a pastor, he was a reverend, and he says, what will happen is it will stimulate men's vices, implying that they'll go and visit prostitutes rather than get married and make children. And they won't be populating the earth anymore. But what that will do is that will decrease the rate of population growth and right. allow for subsistence to get back to an equilibrium. Well, the two things- and now we have porn. The two things historically that have decreased the rate of population growth have always been wealth and education. And as a society gets wealthier and more educated, they do have smaller and smaller next generations. That's why in, yeah. a, in the West, that's exactly the trend that's happening. Right, except now in Japan and things like that, they're actually, their rates of population growth are actually decreasing, um, which is quite interesting because they are um, a wealthy, developed nation. So um, that's what he's saying. Exactly, yeah, to, to my point. This. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you meant that it was. All right, guys, oh, yeah, we are okay, running yeah. a bit long, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. Before we wrap it up, though, uh, where can we find you guys on the internet? Matthew. You can find uh, my blog at hubcityreview.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt J. Therio. T-H-E-R-I-A-U-L-T. What kind of stuff you do on your blog, man? Uh, it's a lot of uh, comic book analysis, stuff like that. Okay. Yeah, Sweet. I mean, I met Matthew because he emailed me and said, hey, look at my blog, and I read his blog, and I'm like, this guy knows his shit. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Origin story. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it was my defense of uh, Batman v Superman, my love of that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that touched me because there's half of me is a Batman v Superman apologist. <laughs> <laughs> Austin? You can find me on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. And Ryan? Uh, you can find me uh, on Facebook and YouTube at Ryan Shorts and Ryan's Game Show. We got all sorts of weird comedy vids on there. Cool. And you can follow me at Wisecrack on Twitter or uh, my Instagram at Father of Woody, where you can see pictures of my dog and my girlfriend's dog. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's it for today. I want to thank everyone for joining me. Thank you, Matthew. It was great having you on. Can't wait to do this again. Oh, thank and, you. Uh, yeah, yeah, man. Good to meet you. Absolutely. And until next time, we'll see you later. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. I think you broke me this episode. Bye. <laughs> see y'all. Peace out, y'all. 